At Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. Our discussion today is inspired by an article that appeared on the Guardian website recently with the headline, Picture Book Bias Worsens as Female Characters Stay Silent. This is based on research by the Guardian of books published in the last year. This research shows that most picture books present a white and male-dominated world to children. When modern research shows that a child is 1.6 times more likely to read a picture book with a male rather than a female lead, and that 70% of books only feature BAME characters in a non-speaking role, we have to ask, is this really news? Isn't this just how it's always been? And if the answer to that is yes, then what should we be doing about it today? So I want to ask you, from what age do you guys remember reading? Did you pick up the books by yourself or did you read what you were given by your parents or from school? What do you, what was it you were reading at that age? And what age did you start reading as well? I mean, I couldn't tell you when I started reading, like picking things up for myself. But I mean, even now, well, actually, no, I think it's it's swapped now. But, you know, well into high school, my mum would give me books and she would say that she enjoyed this. So I should read it. And of course, I would immediately not read it because my mum gave it to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mom. Um, but yeah, I definitely took recommendations. Um, I I wasn't really a kid who went out and sought things myself. Uh, yeah, probably was given books. Um, I, it's really funny because uh, my sister and I had a bit of a reversal that she, as a young child, would read a lot more than I did. And then when I kind of hit my teens, all I did was read solidly for about seven years so Megan and I are kind of similar in this that it's like Lucy don't you want to go out to a party no <laughs> I want I'm in the middle of like the wheel of time or something <laughs> but of course by that point I was reading adult books so my experience with kids books mostly comes from what my parents read to us um as as young children uh and uh, and, and being at school and feeling some kind of pride in moving up the coloured tears did you have coloured tears what are you talking about <laughs> coloured coloured tears you know of um reading levels I'm with lucy yeah yeah we i'm no. probably not quite a generation ahead of you but i'm about half a generation so we had johnny yellow hat and um billy blue hat and things like that and yeah so it was kind of it was either color coded or it was um numbers or letters or something and you would have a stage where you were at stage one and then you were at stage two or three or whatever my daughter's the same she's like oh I'm at the gold level mummy I've only got brown and white to go before I've finished and it's like yeah that sounds great I think this is a really good uh, kind of segue into talking about what kind of memories we all have of of reading as children you know particularly anything that stands out as being extremely positive or extremely negative? I think for me, it's really nice to think back on my childhood because I read a lot of very Australian children's books. So there was like Possum Magic, which was, you know, obviously about a possum. You know, there was Edward the Emu and then its sequel, Edwina the Emu. <laughs> and there are the Blinky Bill books and Snugglepot and Cuddle Pie and so all these just really Australian things. Um, and I think for me, especially when I'm, I'm living abroad, it's kind of nice to go back to those kids' books. You know, I have copies of them and I still go back to them sometimes when I'm feeling a little homesick. So that for me is is really nice that I had that kind of cultural aspect to the, the kids' books. I don't think mine are necessarily wrapped up with some of the books. Although talking about cultural things, I... I bought a few books for my daughter that I really loved as a kid. And there was Dracula's Daughter by Mary Hoffman, which I bought aged, whatever, 30-something, and realised it was illustrated by um, Chris Riddell, one of my favourite illustrators. And this was years and years ago, back in the 80s, when he must have written it. I was like, wow, that's so cool. And another one called Conquer by Michael Morpurgo. And they were both part of the Banana Books, if anyone of my age remembers them. And uh, they all sort of starred 
just random kids in houses in the street and you know they'd go and ride on their bikes or if I say climb trees that makes it sound really you know like Victorian kind of stuff but it wasn't they were just doing stuff that that we kind of did and I guess if you contrast that to to Megan's where you've got you know very Australian kind of animals and settings I suppose for me this kind of represented the kind of settings that I was used to and that I'd seen but I think my most positive memories for me, um, I have to say, where I grew up was in the middle of nowhere. And we did have a library, but it was a decent drive away. So we used to have a little mobile library. And it was a, a big sort of, well, medium-sized lorry. And it would pull up and they'd open up the doors and you could go in. And the, if you ran around too fast, the library would rock from side to side. And they had a, a selection of things. And I used to get out the same things every now and again. So um Dracula's Daughter is all about a little girl who discovers she's Dracula's daughter at Halloween. So come Halloween, it was like, oh, I'm going to get that out because that was very much of the time for me. And again, Conquer was set in the autumn. So I used to to read that as well come, come autumn time or if it was in the spring and I was looking forward to autumn because I was looking forward to Halloween. So for me, it was... It, the books were exciting, but the, the fact of getting books and being able to get new books and, you know, this special day and we'd all line up outside. Sorry, I must sound very sad, but it was such a wonderful thing in our community to be able to have this little mobile library that trundled around and brought you fresh books that you could keep for four whole weeks and then give back. Um, and I think that's a very positive memory. And I, I just I just love it. And that's why I try and use my library masses and take my daughter there all the time to try and keep this going because it's such a wonderful resource. So one of the questions you sent round was to do with um, if there was any particular book that has stayed kind of with you into adulthood. And um, particularly for this episode, I got down, I'm holding it right now, um, my old hardback of a book called The Dragon Wore Pink, uh, which is by Christopher Hope and illustrated by Angela Barrett. And I'm pretty sure it's out of print now because this is a pretty old edition. Um and I got it out because I thought it was a great example of a book that had a very positive, diverse message, which kind of totally went over my head when I was when I read it as, you know, maybe a, a nine, eight or nine year old. Um, but when I read it again as an adult, I really appreciated that. Yeah, some of it is it's quite obvious, but maybe, you know, a lot of picture books are quite obvious. They need to be to kind of communicate their message. Um, and it's a really nice story about basically people and dragons and the idea of segregation, the idea of um, what well, the reality of um, prejudice. The the main character is called Tarquin and he he really likes wearing pink and he likes having a fan and he's a totally gay dragon, which is really obvious to me now. But when I was nine, it was totally, totally not obvious. I was just thinking he was cool <laughs> It was a dragon. Um, and yeah, that was written in, well, I'm just going to have a look. Probably, but I'm guessing it's probably the 80s. I'm, I'm just, oh, dragons everywhere. Oh, it's an, oh, how embarrassing. It's an ex-library book and it has a big withdrawn stamp on the inside. Ooh, rebel. Oh, dear. <laughs> Whoops. Okay. No. That's not embarrassing. What is embarrassing is a library book that doesn't have withdrawn stamped on it because it means you took it out and never gave it back. <laughs> this is just one that you loved so much you bought. It's okay if it's got withdrawn on it. It's when you're the last person who signed it out. Oh, phew, because I've still got it and it's amazing. So, yeah, if anyone else is out there has got the Dragon War pink, then, um, yeah, happy memories. But I thought it was great because it's a good example of, like, a, 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 a diverse book that, you know, was written in the 80s, which maybe there aren't that many of, as we've kind of come to, to realise. I feel like the book that sort of really stayed with me in adulthood is not at all as uh, deep as the one that you liked. Uh, my mum rang me and she was like, oh, I I'm, I'm, want to send you a load of the books that we still got at home in Australia. I was like, okay. And she says, oh, there's just these kids' books. You know, I was going to give them to some friends who have children. And I was like, no, <laughs> you absolutely cannot do that. And uh, one in particular is called Cuddly Dudley. And it's about the cuddliest penguin in the world and he just he's so cuddly that 
all his brothers and sisters, they just can't help themselves but give him cuddles. So he has to leave the little penguin village and find some space because he just needs some personal space, guys. Come on. And, uh, yeah, he just, like, chills and hangs and, you know, but eventually he goes back to the others. But, yeah, the the, the last line is it's, you're just so cuddly, Dudley. <laughs> And he's like, it starts all over again. <laughs> Have they not learned that, you know, they need to give him some space? No. Uh, but yes, uh, I love that book and I regularly reread that. i got to say the books that stay with me are ones that I read when I was slightly older. So um, I remember being mildly terrified when my father used to read me Captain Beaky and his band, which was very dark poetry. Um, I mean, think like the Dark Crystal, but kind of in book form. <laughs> but as I got a bit older, I discovered things like um, Robin Jarvis. Um, Alice in Wonderland, always been a, a fan of as well. But Robin Jarvis, I really loved. And I mean, if we're looking for good representation of of women and strong female characters, you cannot go wrong with Robin Jarvis's Whitby trilogy, which has plenty of strong female characters. And some of them are in their 90s and they still kick more ass than, you know, the beautiful 30-something witch and, and her warlock husband and things like that and the oaken throne was another one. Oh, that, i was just about to mention the oaken, the oaken throne. throne yeah i yeah. remember vividly yeah. sitting on a sunday morning while my parents were having tea in bed reading it and trying so hard not to cry loudly in case they came through to see it was wrong because it was just such a, a sad ending it was, it was absolutely just rats with heartbreaking dogs. but it what's is. great about the oaken throne is that the main character is uh, has the chance of true love and turns it down to be the i think she's the star wife yes um she, which is basically the ruler of the squirrel colony and because that's her destiny and she's like you know what no no i've got a duty to my people and then of course when she's sitting on the throne and she's about to be you know um the crown is coming towards her head she suddenly realizes what she's losing and of course she runs out and terror horror oh my god this is the thing i've never recovered from but the point is at the end of the book um she goes back and is like you know what else do i have you know i i am supposed to be the ruler and she you know bloody hell like she says a shit time of it you know but she she goes on and she rules for many years and and i thought that was such a great that talking about female representation that is such a great example of you know of a woman who suffers but does her duty and becomes a great ruler. Well, exactly. I mean, the beauty of the Oaken Throne, um, for those of you who haven't read Robin Jarvis, is that he wrote, um, is it the Depth of Mice trilogy, isn't yes. it? Um, yes, yeah, Depth of Mysteries. Yes, yeah, the Depth of Mice trilogy, which stars mice versus rats in general and giant cats. Um, but then what he did is he wrote three books, which Lucy said was the Depth of Histories, which did backstories to the to three of the characters, one of which was the Star Wife. And I, I remember for me kind of going, wow, there's this really grumpy, ancient, grizzled character in these books that I love. And look, she had a whole life before she was grumpy, ancient and grizzled. And that was kind of eye-opening for me because I know that obviously Alice Boston in the Whitby series is just one of my favourite all-time characters ever. I mean, up there with Granny Weatherwax, she is amazing. But you kind of come to her when she's already old. Um, and the same with Granny Weatherwax. That they are, they are forces of nature, but they're kind of complete. You don't know how they've got there. And the beauty of the Oaken Throne was that you saw how someone vulnerable and sweet and kind and caring, but with a iron will, cool. yeah, yeah, became this character that you were so familiar with. And I thought that was that was really empowering and, and really good. So thumbs up to Robin Jarvis. I'm from so glad two -thirds that you of mentioned the, that. Yeah, <laughs> two thirds of the podcast. But I do have to go a little bit more lowbrow now and say the other ones that really stayed with me, um, perhaps not too surprising given my current choice of career, were the Point Horror books that I read when I was a kid. I know Megan was talking earlier about Goosebumps. Point Horror to me was much better than Goosebumps. Goosebumps was kind of silly and uh, That's what you say. I was a very avid Goosebumps reader. Ah, okay. Well, I it, I thought it had its place, and I did enjoy it because I used to watch it and read it a lot. Um, and also, I remember um, Are You Afraid of the Dark? That was an amazing TV series. But that aside, I found Point Horror kind of more like a B-movie, but in a book. So it was all the stuff I wasn't allowed to watch on TV in book format, and I really loved those. And there were quite a few women in them. And I went back and I read a couple of my favourites, and I was like, dear God, this is badly written, and dear God, these women are stupid. But at the time, 
they they did go out and they solved the mystery and they caught the killer and they didn't get stabbed to death and things like that. <laughs> I remember that when I was small, I actually I used to have a lot of trouble sleeping. And one of the ways to get me to sleep would be that my parents would either read to me or just tell me stories. And I was definitely one of those kids with, that would ask to... Uh, ask my parents to actually tell me a story that they thought of. I wanted them to come up with one rather than just read me one. And I remember my dad telling me this amazing story that just absolutely blew my mind. Of course, later on, I discovered that it was basically, um, you know, his version of Ray Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder, which is, you know, the, a time travel story where, you know, they go on this kind of safari in the in the past and meet some dinosaurs and so on. And one of the, the guys steps off the path and steps on a butterfly. And then back in his own time, everything's completely changed. This absolutely blew my mind as a child. And I think with some degree of certainty, I can kind of blame that story and my father for my love of sci-fi from then on. Well, that's really interesting you should mention science fiction because um, one of the things we thought up in the beginning before we wrote down the questions was that we tend to see a lot more fantasy stories on the kids' shelves rather than science fictions. So why do we think this is and what do you think young readers are missing out on without having access to age-appropriate science fiction? I don't know. I mean, because I, I think it's obvious. I mean, I'm a massive sci-fi fan, but none of the books that I read when I was really young could really fit into sci-fi. The earliest things that I picked up were the Star Wars Expanded Universe novels, which I absolutely devoured, and I used to have some of them on tape, and they were oh, read. Yeah. yeah, they were read by Anthony Daniels, who's C-3PO, <gasps> and they were yes, amazing. I remember those. Oh, so good. I still have them on my tapes. Not that I have a tape player, but I have them. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, but nothing else when I was really young would fit into that everything kind of went for the the fantasy and the magic and you know i was reading things about fairies or um i was obsessed with the chronicles of pridane and you know and even something like charlotte's web there was a lot of animals in my young reading i have to admit you know with the emus and the koalas and magic spiders um I, I find that quite interesting as well. But yeah, I, d I think it's sad that there isn't more of this, the sci-fi kind of bent to really young stories, given they're people, people like me. Or maybe there were. I can imagine there'd be things like, you know, astronauts, like, you know, boys and rocket ships or something. But at least they weren't the kinds of things that I ever had access to. Mm. Or you didn't well, feel that they were marketed to you and therefore you kind of missed out. Quite possibly, yeah. Well, I do have a theory about this. When I was thinking about it, based on my own experience and being a mother as well. So science fiction tends to take what is already known and then extrapolates. So with kids, they've got such a limited foundation of understanding science that it's quite difficult for them to extrapolate. So when I was a kid, I didn't have any science fiction, apart from obviously Star Trek that I loved, but that wasn't in book format when I was a kid. And although I did read the same Star Wars expanding the universes as Megan, that wasn't till much later. When I was very young, alongside reading me The Hobbit, my father read me H.G. Wells. And I remember loving these stories, but not really understanding them. And I mean, that was part of the beauty of it for me, was that I didn't really understand them, so they were even more mysterious. But as I got older and I reread them, I was like, oh, okay, so that's kind of what he was going on about. And I thought about my daughter as well. And we watched the, sorry, spoilers, if you haven't seen uh, Lego Movie 2, then I'm about to spoil it for you. But there's a time travel element in it. Um, and it was obvious to me when I first saw it exactly what was going on from the minute the character turned up. And I then had to explain it to my daughter, who didn't really understand the concept of time travel. And it wasn't really explained in the Lego Movie 2 to a level that, you know, would allow a seven-year-old to understand it. But I have no problem explaining to her when something is scary or when something is magical. They just kind of accept that. They seem to, kids seem to struggle to kind of go, well, here is a fact and here's the what if. So I wonder if that's maybe something to do with why there isn't as much science fiction for the very, the very young. And it tends to be kind of more teenager years when they've got a little bit more grounding in what the world is all about. And they're not having to learn one concept that is true and one concept that is fantasy and try and distinguish between the two. 
Mm. That's a really interesting comparison, actually, because I found I had exactly the same experience. I cannot really remember reading any anything that could be called science fiction at you know in my formative years, and I was always much more drawn to fantasy anyway but i don't know it's one of those things where you i've I've got absolutely no statistics back this up but without science fiction you know is it it science fiction that could spark a love of studying the sciences in children It, it may not have any bearing on it at all but i like the idea i could definitely get behind the idea of of seeing the kind of the facts behind science fiction introduced at a younger age and just the other day, when I was doing, I was a, uh, I worked for Waterstones, so I was putting a book order together, and a couple of the books that came in for this school were called General Relativity for Babies, and it was only about six or so pages long, um, but I thought it was great, you know, like why not? Why not have general relativity in a board book? So maybe we're going in the right way, you know. I've I, I've never seen anything like that before. I've got to say that's so cool. So. If I can just draw it back to um, where we were in the thread previously, and we've all talked about all the books we've read um, when we were kids. So the books that you remember reading, um, and obviously, Lucy, the books that you see in Waterstones now, did you notice a distinct lack of female characters? um, Or did you think there were plenty? I didn't notice as much as I do now, obviously. Um, But maybe that was because I read quite a lot especially before I was a teen a lot of the books I read did have a lot of female characters in them I I mean I I probably went through quite a bit of Enid Blyton and a standout character for me was the naughtiest girl in the school (laughs) uh, who I idolized I thought she was excellent and especially a bit where she kicks over the older boys. I thought it was brilliant. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was in Blyton. And, you know, <laughs> with that came stuff like shrimp paste, which, you know, is completely incomprehensible to a nine-year-old child in the 90s. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question because I, it's not when you're that age, you're just not on the lookout for um the gender split of between characters you simply take a book as it's presented um and i i don't really remember thinking oh i wish this character was a girl well i must admit i do remember a lot of books quite male heavy but i also remember reading a lot of books that were based on groups um and i put this question out to um friends on facebook and to a mother's group that i'm part of as well and it was amazing the amount of people that came back with the Secret Seven or the Famous Five by um, Enid Blyton and other things that I hadn't heard of, like uh, Skullduggery Pleasant and the Midnight Gang and obviously Harry Potter and things like that. So there were, I think there were and continue to be quite a lot of good representation within books if there's a group of people and the women or female characters in that tend to be quite active um you know have they, they might have a rather stereotypical role within the group but they are still kind of quite active and um, the one thing that I didn't really feel that I had when I was a kid were people of color in any of my books and I look back through them and I could only find one which was the um blue bananas book I was talking about earlier and they did Dracula's Daughter and Conquer but they also did one called Burpa um which was a little boy and he was overweight and he wanted to be the main character in a play because a young Indian girl had arrived and she was the most beautiful thing ever. And at the end she disappeared in like a puff of smoke. And that was the only person of colour I could think of in all of my readings as a kid. I think based on what people have told me their kids are reading now and what they've re- what they're reading now, um, I think there's an awful lot more being done to not only include women, but also people of colour and minorities. And at this point, I'd just like to give a quick shout out to a fantastic book I'm reading at the moment called Blackberry Blue, which is retelling of European fairy tales, but with people of colour and minority um, in it. And it's just it's just amazing and wonderful and very beautiful. So that for me is a perfect example of how far we've moved on um, from where there was only one person of colour who was magical in the books I read as a kid. And now I can introduce my daughter to a load of fairy tales that have people from all around the world in them. But what about you, Megan? I mean, you come from a a completely different continent to us. What was it like in Australia? (laughs) It was strange because I was looking at the gender of the authors of 
the books that I really loved as a, as a small child. And they were mostly female, but the protagonists were mostly male. And then when they did have female characters, it came in after the fact. So it would be, you know, the first book in a series would focus on the male character and then maybe one down the line would. So that certainly happens with Edward the Emu because the second book focuses on Edwina. And then you have like Blinky Bill, um, male koala. Um, but you don't really start to get into Nutsy and her story until later on. <laughs> Silly names. Um, but yeah, so, but it, they're all written by women and it's interesting. And like Cuddlepot and Snuggle Pie, um, they're kind of genderless, but you, I always assumed that they were boys. I mean, I was a real tomboy as a as a kid and I wanted to be a boy and whenever we played games where we'd like I don't know we used to play things like Jungle Book and we'd just pretend to be characters in the Jungle Book and I always wanted to be Mowgli not because he was the protagonist but because I wanted to be a boy I think perhaps part of that is because there weren't really female characters in the books that I was reading like even well, they like, weren't female characters that were interesting how, yeah how you wanted to be seen. yeah so they were possibly assigned more stereotypical roles, female roles. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I was always I was thinking back on Chronicles of Narnia and I used to, all the girls in the books, I didn't like them because they always came across to me like they were the party poopers. They were the sensible ones and they were, you know, they didn't want to go off and do the silly adventures. They were just, you know, being prim and proper and whatever. And I was like, no, I want to be out there you know, shooting stuff and getting dirty and I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, the one thing that I have remembered, though, is not great in terms of different colours and um, different kind of representation there, but in terms of an ageist approach, uh, another favourite of mine when I was a kid it was called Granny O'Brien and the Diamonds of Selmore. And the granny in it saves everyone and she's total badass and uh, I used to love that and I'd always ask my granny uh, <laughs> if she was as badass as Granny O'Brien. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? We didn't, we haven't kind of touched on um, the, the age of the characters because often in children's books you would think even more than teen and adult books, you'd think that the protagonists would have to be young to be empathizable with but clearly that's not the case you know children possibly more than adults can have the ability to empathize with everybody and I because I feel like by the time you get to our age you've just been exposed to so much of society and so much um you've, you've imbibed so much bias from everything from the world around you from what people are telling you from the stuff that you're you know unconsciously taking in that we can now possibly no longer read with the same level of empathy as we could have done when we were very very young children and I think this is why this particular article that's saying well there are no books um which are I mean there are very few books of good representation that's why that's so bad because children are so malleable and it's that in their formative years that this is the point where it's most important that they see as many worldviews as possible. I think it's interesting that you say that because so another one of my favourite books was Lavender the Library Cat. And I think it's quite obvious that I read a lot of books where the main characters were animals. Um, <laughs> but I think that's interesting when you look at the um, kind of the speculative fiction adult readers. If the kids who are exposed to more different perspectives and whether it's in animals or different representations of people, old, young, of different cultures and so on, I think is similar to the kind of how they talk about People who read speculative fiction have more empathy, are more um, engaged in these kinds of discussions. And, you know, okay, obviously I'm bigging myself up because I'm one of these people. But I think it does, it does actually kind of marry up because in speculative fiction we are constantly, you know, whether it's fantasy and thinking about a completely different world of our own, you know, it, it forces us to look at different kinds of people and different ways of living. And I think that that, does map pretty well to showing diversity in, in younger books as well. Um, but yeah, so shout out to all the wonderful speculative fiction readers out there. 
<laughs> it's interesting you should mention books that have animals as protagonists because one of my favourite as a kid was called uh, The King of the Vagabonds. And I'm just logging on to Amazon now to see if I can figure out who wrote it. Um, and it was basically about, well, the main character was male, but it was a cat. And um, it was just really wonderful for me because I got to read about a microcosm in a weird way of fights and um, inheritance and status and society. And you kind of did it in a, oh, there we are, Colin Dan. That was it, Colin Dan with two ends. And I think by doing it with animals and putting a sort of a more speculative or magical element in it, you get children to be able to really immerse themselves in something that they think is magical and fantastic and talking animals, while at the same time giving them a very kind of moral lesson about how society should work or even if it's something as simple as the strong protect the weak rather than ex exposing them or taking advantage of them or something like that so I think there's a lot to be gained from obviously speculative fiction in that respect um, and particularly when it comes to to animals because if you've got a book that is set in a playground compared to a book that is say set in the world of cats if there is one kid in the playground who looks like you in that book, you are automatically going to assume that that is your role or that is how society sees you. If it's a load of cats, you can pick whichever one you want and you can recognise elements of yourself within all of them as well. So it's not as limiting and it broadens the mind to be able to go, well, actually, I could be any of these. Which do I want to be rather than, oh, well, I'm clearly the the brown haired girl with the pigtails who's sitting quietly in the corner reading a book and never gets to do anything because that's who I am. It's like, oh no, I want to be this cat over there or, or however you interpret it. Mm. They don't come with the same baggage that humans come with, you know. Exactly. Or the same preconceptions as well. Exactly. Yeah. And some of them are just really cuddly penguins. <laughs> <laughs> so, Obviously, this Guardian article focuses on picture books, and I think it's pretty clear to most people that picture books still have a long way to go. But what about as we get a bit older? I certainly found that as I read older stories like uh, Point Horror and other things, and sorry, Secret Seven and Famous Five, if we're going back a bit, um, that it was it was slightly better representation and the girls had slightly more to do and you might have more people of colour in it. So do you think that diversity of representation does improve as the target reading age increases or is that just my experience in it alone? I think absolutely it does. Maybe not, uh, well, certainly not for people of colour, but in terms of more interesting female characters, Anne of Green Gables. I was obsessed with Anne of Green Gables and uh, I wanted to be Anne and you know this, it was a story about her and her friendship with Diana and so there were you know and Marilla was a strong female character and you know, there were so many women in that those books and I loved them all it was amazing and then shortly after I got obsessed with Anne of Green Gables I loved I, I fell in love with books like Ella Enchanted and uh, the Hero and the Crown, which I've now forced um, others to read. <laughs> but it's amazing. It is. Um, and, and, you know, I, I loved that, I think, possibly, like, The Hero and the Crown, because Erin is just so, she decides what she wants to do. The entire plot is her driving it. And I hadn't really come across a book where the, the hero was, A, a woman, and B, she was driving the whole thing, and C, she... But he goes and kills a dragon. And like, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and I also think that at that point you get more, or at least I started picking up more interesting things and, and things set in different places. Because I remember reading A String in the Harp by Nancy Bond, and that's set in Wales. And at the time, uh, we were actually living in the US at the time, but I, I hadn't been to, to England yet, I don't think. And, you know, that was really interesting for me because it kind of played off the 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 mythology that was very different from what I was used to. And that for me was really, really interesting. And I started to be exposed to sort of more diverse cultural kinds of stories. Um, you know, when I, I think this is what you call middle grade, I'm not entirely sure about this, but those kinds of books, I think really opened my horizons quite a bit. And I think they had a lot more to offer me in terms of seeing women doing interesting things rather than always being like the blokes who are having fun times. Yeah, when I put this question out on Facebook, I got almost 100 responses overall um, in various different sectors. 
And it was amazing how often Anne of Green Gables cropped up and also Joe Marsh from Little Women. Um, and these are obviously back in my generation's day. We didn't have all the fantastic sort of teenage middle grade YA stuff that you do now. Um, so we were kind of going to slightly older books. I mean, there's there's an argument that Anne of Green Gables is obviously sort of middle grade and designed for that. But it felt so much older to me when I read it. It felt like a proper adult book. And again, with Little Women, obviously is designed to be an adult book. Um, and I did wonder if perhaps if you're a publisher and you're looking to sell a book, as long as you've got what, what you can see as one main marketable character in it, then you can afford to have, you know, proactive women and people of colour in it because you've still got your main selling point of a cis male or whatever it is. Um, and because obviously as, as kids get older, they get more interested in groups and societies and that kind of thing and are looking for something slightly different, whereas at the beginning they just want to read you know the same sort of stories over and over again I mean what do you think Lucy? Uh, I, I, I do I think representation does improve you know as as we go along um, and I think there's been an, a that's probably been helped by um, it being you know being re- reports like the one you linked uh, commissioned by Book Trust um, you know to show kind of how how bad the situation is and how much you know what can be done to to kind of help it and I do think publishers have a responsibility um to not just to the readership but kind of like to you know the the next generation of kids to you know that we all deserve to see ourselves represented in books but the problem is like this is going to sound so so depressing and capitalist but like the money controls uh, what gets produced and generally the money will pick things that have done well in the past and of course that's a self-fulfilling prophecy you just keep on producing the same books and so we never really kind of get into a situation where you know people are producing things that are different and and do reflect the really diverse world we live in um and yeah i mean i think it's probably easier to do that when you're at a, a, a higher age group because kids are then possibly encountering more people especially through the internet i think the internet has done a has played a very large role in introducing children to people from different countries from different religions from different cultures from different um social political backgrounds more so than they might just find in their classroom but again with that comes greater issues of complexity so again it's more likely to you're more likely to find that in you know books aimed at, at the older kind of middle grade to teen age group okay so i'm going to smoosh two of our questions together because i think they're they're quite linked Um, in my head, certainly. So the first question was, we tend to hope that children will learn from books, both knowledge and good habits. But is there anything that you took away from books as a youngster that you really wished you'd never been exposed to? And then a corollary to that is that in a Guardian article, uh, Sarah Rizik-Bayer, sorry if I haven't said that properly, said, books are windows and mirrors. They're mirrors allowing children to see themselves represented as well as windows into other people's lives. Now, some of the Enid Blyton books I read as a kid were horribly racist. So bearing in mind your answer to the first part, how would we tackle such older literature now? Should it be quietly discarded? Should it be amended? Or should we promote such books as a springboard for discussing racial and other issues with children? I absolutely think that we should just discuss them. I don't think anything should be censored, really. Because even things like... so. I think I mentioned that the Chronicles of Prydain were a real favourite of mine when I got slightly older. Um, and it, the main sort of female character is Princess Aelonwy. And I couldn't stand her. She was silly and she was ugh, ugh. But it also kind of, seeing a female character that I didn't like also helped me decide what kind of person I wanted to be because I recognised I didn't want to be like her. Um, and I think that's important as well. But it does need to be discussed. I don't think you could introduce books that are very racist without, and then let the child just read that without any kind of reflection on that. I think it has to be reflected and, and, and thought about. I wouldn't censor anything. I'd like to support new books being written by people from marginalized communities who whose stories these stories belong to them so i'd I'd, if i had to choose you know um i'd rather we introduce children to these new stories which haven't been seen in bookshops and haven't been kind of part of the general reading list and the kind of general um 
the mat of our own experience, childhood experiences. Again, I put this question out to Facebook to my friends who have kids and who don't have kids, maybe have nieces or friends with kids and to a mother's group. And I got an amazing amount of responses. And there were so many different ways of dealing with it. And I just I thought some of them were brilliant. Um, I mean, one person sort of said, well, there's so much changed with modern stuff. And it's so much better that we just avoid the classics altogether because we don't need to read them. So I guess there is an argument that, you know, is Enid Blyton really relevant when you've got Julia Donaldson these days? Um, a lot of people said that they talk about it and they discuss it. Um, there were some examples given, obviously, of Enid Blyton. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia came up over and over again. Horrid Henry came up as a modern one and Peppa Pig, which I thoroughly agree with. God, Peppa Pig and the fat shaming is just awful. Um, and that's certainly the approach we took. I know it's TV, but with Ben and Holly and those kind of TV and books, um, I really objected to those. But rather than say to my daughter, right, we're not going to watch it, we would watch it and then discuss how... Basically, Nanny Plum had been absolutely horrible. Um, but other parents had different ways of doing it. So that one parent said that they thought generally some books were okay and they just skipped over a few phrases. There was one parent who had an amazing idea and said, um, well, what we did was there was one, one book that had no boys in it at all. So I let my little girl choose how to rename the main character, the main protagonist, as a girl. And I just read it as a girl's book. And the girl did everything the boy did. And I just replaced the name, which I thought was a, a wonderful way to do it. Um, another person said, well, they're going to encounter it in school in life anyway, so why why hide it? Um, and one person even said, well, I want my daughter to be angry about this racism and, and all this class system that we see here, and I want her to want to do better, which I thought was a, a really fantastic attitude to take as well. And I think what I got from you know all the responses I got was that people are aware of it so much more than they were in my day, and they are dealing with it in a variety of different ways that obviously – suits different people I mean when I I thought back about it and I was trying to think about what books I'd encountered and oh my god I don't know if I can even say the word now but when I read Eni Blyton and the Gollywogs and that just I just hated that and I I hate to say the word now when I realize what it means and the the racial connotations behind it and someone on on the post said well I never as a child I never really saw um, those characters as representing black people I saw them as just representing toys in the same way that you know there were teddy bears in it and things like that but I'm not sure I could let my daughter read Enid Blyton now with those characters in it to try and say well actually you know it was fine to to name these characters after an incredibly offensive word and I also thought about The Witch Witch by Eva Ibbotson which I always recommended to kids to you know, if a if a middle grade girl came up and said, oh, you know, what should I read or whatever? I'd be like, oh, The Witch Witch. And I remember thinking that it just, it was a fantastic book about cool powers. But when I read it now, I realise that it's actually a load of witches fighting to see who will get married to the, the main warlock and become his wife. It's actually a boy that helps the, the favourite witch to, to win. Um, so he's the one that has the powers, not her. And the one who wins is the quiet, obedient and nice witch. And I look at it and go, oh my God, I really shouldn't be recommending it to all these kids. But what I got from it when I was a kid was just so much fun and all these women having all these fantastic powers, as it, you know, as you would do if you went up in front of a competition. Um, and I think, I think there's so much good stuff today. And I don't think we should step away from the books. I still think they should be used as a good way to discuss issues in the past. But at the same time, I think I would still pick and choose my books and I probably want to read the book in advance, think about the message it was giving and what discussion points I could raise with my daughter as I read it. Um, and the one thing I really thought about that really bugged me, which is in a modern book, that everybody said how much they loved Hermione. Uh, Lucy might be able to help me out on this. I think it's the second book where um, Hermione ends up being accidentally having a spell cast on her that makes her teeth get, grow long. And up until that point, she's had buck teeth. And what happens is that um, when the the sister... It, it's in the fourth book. Oh, it's the fourth book, is mm -hmm. it? And they, they fix her teeth. And her, they were like, oh, wow, you, you don't have buck teeth anymore. And she went, well, no. Well, when they were casting the spell, they told me to stop. And I just waited until it got a bit smaller. And then I, I said, stop. And I kind of felt, well... I kind of like that she had buck teeth, that she was like so many kids I know that do have buck teeth. And it wasn't a thing that, you know, you should be ashamed of or want to change. And it was just yeah, like, if I was young, I would have done the same thing, though. I was like, <laughs> I know, I know. I but <laughs> at the same time, I, I can kind of see where it's coming from. And I think, again, it's 
the difference of reading it as a kid or as an adult. As an adult, I go, no, you should be happy with the body you're in, whereas you're right. If I had buck teeth as a kid, I'd probably be like, oh, my God, I was so like that. But I don't know whether seeing a character magically change it would be helpful to me. No, and, you know, whether it reinforced the idea that girls have to be pretty and if they've got buck teeth, then by the fourth book, they have to get rid of them. But apart from that, I mean, we love J.K. Rowling and she's amazing, but that was just one minor niggle that has kind of stuck with me ever since. You did raise an interesting um, question, which was when you were talking about Witch Witch, which I haven't read. You said that you, upon reading it when you were younger, you just saw it as a fun book with women wielding fun powers. And it wasn't until you were older that you realised that it had possibly problematic representation in it. So that raises an interesting question to me of whether, how much of this stuff do we imbibe unconsciously? We're adults now and we're good at kind of looking at stuff and analysing it. But children obviously just read at face value. I'm probably overanalyzing a little bit, but I think it all has to be taken in in context. So when I grew up, um, we used to have carry-on films on a Sunday regularly in the bank holidays. And we used to have the James Bond films where there wasn't very good representation of women at all. And women certainly had a very definitely stereotypical role. and that wasn't my choice to do. It wasn't my choice to watch it. My parents watched it. It was on and I enjoyed it and it was fun and, and whatever. But I think what bugged me about Witch Witch was the fact that I voluntarily picked it up and voluntarily enjoyed it. It wasn't something that somebody else exposed me to and said, you must do, you know, you should watch this. It was something that I picked up and went, wow, this is great and kept reading again and again. And I think that's kind of what bugged me about it. But looking back on it, I go, well, it's great to read it as a book. And I think kids would enjoy it so long as they don't then go away and are then just bombarded with so, so much of the same. And I think the reason I enjoyed it was because it kind of took all these Bond movies and these carry-on films, and it just gave the women a little bit more power um, and just mm. gave them a bit more of an interesting role. So it was a step up for me, mm. uh, whereas I think now it should kind of be the low bar, if that makes sense. So rather than it being one up, it should be kind of the bottom level and you should enjoy it. But at the same time, you should also try and read something more proactive like uh, the Abhorsome trilogy, whose name has currently oh, Sabriel. Sabriel, yeah. yeah. So yeah. when you when you've got a book like Sabriel to follow it up with, then I think which which is a really good fun story. But I think if you're then reading that and then having everything else telling you the same thing, and you know Absolutely, the which which is your yeah. your best representation of um, feminine values, and I I think that's slightly wrong. Yeah. So it's actually a cumulative thing. If if every single book does that, then we are going to have a problem. But if it's just one book, then Maybe we should leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, if it's one book on a list of other really good books that all have different characters. Um, and there's no reason not to enjoy stuff with just boys in it. And we all grew up reading, well, sorry, Megan, most of us grew up reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And we've all got fabulous values <laughs> based on the sausage fest that was those two books. You know, so it's, it's as insulting to say women and girls can't get enough out of can't get anything out of books with just men as it is to say well men shouldn't read books about women because they can't get anything out of it there's there's values to be learned in all of them and I think so long as there's a balance which it does seem to be these days which is brilliant and I think it's great I just think we all kind of suffered from a lot of books that showed women in the same light and didn't really enhance on that very much okay so we've kind of examined books from our past and books from the present uh so if we had to to leave this conversation with you recommending one book for a kid of any age range or all the age ranges, you know, maybe it's one that their parents are going to read to them or one that they're going to pick up themselves or one that they're going to find hidden deep in the library when they're exploring. What would that book be? What do you think is a, a really good book that shows a good balance and a good representation that you would want to leave our readers recommending? Well, I'd obviously recommend The Dragon War Pink because the main character, well, two main characters are a girl and a dragon, uh, are both marginalised from their community. So it's a clearly a good one to choose and they both have fantastic endings. But uh, because it's out of print, um, one that you can more easily get hold of is um, The Worst Princess, uh, which is uh, an Anna Kemp book. And it's basically just defragments the idea of, of a princess and what a princess should be and I really love it because the prince is completely useless he just wants to lock the princess up in another tower 
after he's rescued her from a tower and uh, she's just not having it. She's waited all her life to escape the tower and suddenly someone wants to lock her up again. So, you know, she finds, well, I'm going to have to find someone who is going to allow me to be myself and that someone is a dragon. So she and the dragon fly off together and they have a kind of happy ever after ending. So that's the one I totally go for. Well, I'd have to agree with that one, but I think if I had to pick one, I'm afraid I would have to go with Zog simply because in any challenges female role models that she doesn't have to be a princess i just love the fact that so gadabat goes well actually yeah me too i don't want to be an eye i want to do this and i thought that was really fascinating so i reckon for young kids if you start them off with zog and then sort of middle grade i would probably go with the whitby trilogy by robin jarvis because there is a really good strong uh, boy character in it and a good strong female character and they have their flaws um, but they end up working together and there's a lot of sort of good sibling connections within there and they look out for one another and you have the obviously the fantastic alice boston and then if you're just a bit older the tiffany aching books by um terry pratchett she's just a wonderful character and the wee free men are just amazing and i just i just love those books so i think those would have to be my recommendations for the the various tiers of childhood well at the risk of sounding like a broken record I have to recommend The Hero and the Crown by Robin McKinley to absolutely everyone. I think I was about 11 when I picked it up, and I have reread that book almost every year since I first read it. I love it, um, and I it's amazing. There are fantastic male characters as well as female characters, and it's, it's completely wonderful. But if we're going to talk about young ones, and while, okay, there's no kind of diversity in the representation in them what i think is important is the flower fairies books because they actually got me interested in poetry as a young person and i think that's still important you know i, I i'm not a big poetry reader i'm not a massive fan but i i really love those books and i think it is important to sort of expose children to different kinds of narratives and and structure and form and also the art is beautiful and I still wish that I was a willow tree fairy. I think we've had a comprehensive discussion covering everything from H.G. Wells to the worst princess. When it comes to the classics, there's still value to be gained from them, with great characters like Anne of Green Gables and Joe Marsh being on everyone's favourite list. But there are also negative representation issues that, while they shouldn't be ignored, should be used to discuss differences between societies and modern attitudes. There are certainly some great books today offering more children the opportunity to see characters like them having adventures that we all dream of. But given that we've kept repeating names like Hermione Granger, The Hero and the Crown and Robin Jarvis, it's clear that there's still plenty of room for writers to give us amazing unrepresented characters that will stay with us long into adulthood. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.